Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. This is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would take the feebleness of this uh, clay vessel, that you would uh, use this preaching to uh, cause your people to grow, to be sanctified. And Father, as we continue to worship you, uh, as in our responses to your word, that you would receive what we uh, bring and that you would perfect our praises. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. One of the PCA churches in New York is right next to the Trade Center, and the senior pastor there, Dr. Timothy Keller, has had incredible ministry to Muslims since 9-11. One uh, time he was debating a Muslim scholar in front of a university audience, and the Muslim absolutely insisted, he was just a fire breather, that God is radically one. There is no way that there could be three persons in the Godhead and that the Trinity is blasphemy to Muslims and that the deity of Christ was blasphemy to them as well. Dr. Keller responded, yes, God is indeed one, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that this God existed in three persons and that God the Son took to himself human flesh so that he could be our Redeemer. And that this is at the very heart and center of Christianity. He said that the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus makes him our mediator and that is our most treasured possession. But it's blasphemy to the Muslims. And he proceeded to give a defense of Christianity uh, as against uh, Islam. Now, since they had been so cleared, uh, Dr. Keller was rather perplexed when during the question and answer period, the very first question uh, to come out was prefaced with this statement. It seems obvious that both of you men are saying the same thing. Both you men really believe the same thing. Now, both Dr. Keller and the imam were taken back by this idiocy <laughs> and both assured them, no, we're not saying the same thing. We're saying diametrically opposite things. And yet this student kept insisting, you know, you're really not that far off from each other. You're saying the same thing. Now, this guy was not stupid. Uh, he did apparently quite well in school. But his foolishness came from the fact that he had been brainwashed by the philosophy of pluralism which teaches that all religions and all viewpoints and all arguments are true. They're just different angles, you know, and different perspectives that people uh, have on life. And it was just too much for him to accept an either-or position on these fundamental issues. In fact, pluralism on every level fails on logic. If you study it in terms of logic, it's a flunked school. 
And we're going to be facing more and more of this kind of thinking in America. How do you reason reasonably with Americans? Well, there really is no new thing under the sun, and they had pluralism back there. In fact, the Romans rather prided themselves in their pluralism. You could believe anything that you wanted to believe, so long as you did not question the state. That was the one absolute that they held to, and they were skeptical of any other absolutes. And so how do you reason with people who are pluralistic? Well, there are different answers that have been given. The approach of the emerging church is to throw out logic and reason and theology, you know, doctrine, as being too cold and too sterile. They opt instead for emotion and relationship and experience. Now, Paul does not uh, neglect emotion and uh, relationship and experience, but for him, everything is founded on the Word of God. Everything flows out of doctrine. Uh, for Paul, the Christian faith was a reasonable faith, a logical faith. Now, the emerging church will respond, yeah, but people don't like that anymore. They're not going to be receptive to that. They don't care for doctrine. We've got to give them something that is relevant. But Paul had a total confidence in God's Word, the power of God's Gospel, the power of God's grace to transform individuals. And one of the uh, illustrations that my kids sometimes use is that of a gun. You're holding your Gospel gun at um, you know, your would-be attacker, and your attacker scoffs. He says, I don't believe in guns. Well, just because he doesn't believe in guns does not mean that you put your gun down and say, oh, okay, I didn't realize you didn't believe in guns. No, you pull the trigger and make a believer out of him, right? <laughs> and that's what you've got to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You use God's Word, and then you watch in fascination as God takes hardened hearts, and He changes them of men, women, and children, and He converts them, transforms them uh, from the inside out. We have a reasonable faith. We need to learn how to use it reasonably, but we have a powerful faith that can change uh, people. And so, in Christianity, there is no disjunction between reason and experience. Those two are held together, which means that the gospel can rescue a, an intellectual out of his paganism, or it can rescue anybody else out of their paganism as well. And I think this little paragraph here illustrates how Paul reasoned with unbelievers. There are nine principles packed into these four verses. First principle can be summed up in the word triage. And let me define that term briefly for you. Uh, in the medical arena, triage is a process of sorting out injured and sick people into various groups based on the likelihood that immediate medical attention is going to help them. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to ignore the others. Um, if you have time and they're still alive, you will treat them later. But following established medical principles... Uh, you're trying to make priorities because you have limited resources. You can't reach out everyone uh, to, to everyone. Uh, you would um, burn out. And so triage is used in emergency rooms. It's used on the battlefield. It's used in uh, disaster sites. And the medical personnel who are there know that if they do not pace themselves and use triage, they are going to save far fewer people. So that's the background to it. But if you look in a dictionary, you'll see that triage is used for describing the allocation of scarce resources of any sort to those who will most likely benefit from it. Now, Paul's time and his energy are extremely limited, extremely scarce. 
How does he determine which cities he's going to preach in, which ones he's going to just completely skip? He can't preach to all of them. He has only got so much energy, so much time to go around. And so what he does is he looks for places and cities and people with whom, when he speaks with them, he can leverage the influence of the gospel to the max. Uh, Once he reaches a key city, then what he's going to do is he's going to encourage the church of that region to go and reach the areas that he has missed. And you can see hints of this strategy in this um, first verse. Verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now that last phrase gives one of the principles Paul's used in order to engage in triage uh, reasonably. He ordinarily skipped cities that did not have a synagogue in them. Uh, Occasionally, God would lead him to do otherwise, but even in Philippi, where there was no synagogue, he was looking for a synagogue, and he even went out to the the river where, uh, according to Jewish tradition, you had a proto-synagogue waiting till a synagogue could be formed uh, as a prayer meeting. Well, there weren't any Jews there, but God converted one lady there, and he comes to realize this is a very strategic woman. He spends more time there, but the point is, Paul didn't have time to talk to everyone. He talked to those he believed would be the most ready, the most receptive, and the most key. We've got three cities mentioned in verse 1. Amphipolis was a day's journey from Philippi. It was an incredibly strategic city. If you were doing church planting, I think you would think this would be a very great city to reach. Uh, One uh, author stated, Amphipolis was some 30 miles southwest of Philippi. Formerly capital of the first division of Macedonia and a free city, it was important for its strategic position, controlling access to the Hellespont and the Black Sea. It would have been a significant place for witness, but Luke did not indicate that Paul carried on any mission there or anywhere else along the route to Thessalonica. Why? There was no synagogue. Uh, Next city, Apollonius, was another day's journey from uh, the first one. And he didn't stay there either. Stayed overnight, no doubt, but he didn't stay there to preach because there was no synagogue there. See, when Christ uh, commissioned Paul to preach, he told him, preach to the Jews first, and then through those Jews, go out and preach to to the Gentiles. But that was the principle he had to follow, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And what that did is it enabled him to engage in far less work, be able to reach people who were ready far more quickly. And I'll explain that uh, in a bit. Uh, We should not uh, waste our time. Well, let me me just uh, explain briefly the background. If he starts with the Jews, and there's always going to be some hanger-ons from the Gentiles, if he starts with them, he's not going to have to prove that the Word of God, the Scriptures really is the Word of God, that there is only one God, Uh, doctrines of sin and judgment, that the law of God continues to apply, many other doctrines, all he has to prove is that Jesus really is the Messiah. And if he can win some Jews and then through those Jews reach out to other Gentiles, he's going to uh, have been able to advance much more quickly. And we would do well not to waste our time arguing with people who aren't interested in the gospel. Sometimes God will guide us to do so, but here's Christ's warning. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And you can see that even with the Jews, when they hardened themselves against the gospel, 
he didn't persevere there. He left them, he, he, he just left them be. He went on to others who were more prepared by God's Spirit. And I think this uh, chapter definitely illustrates that. And so the principle is that we should focus our attention on those who are most receptive. And again, always keeping in mind, like in the previous chapter, God's Spirit sometimes guides us to do preach to rocky soil. But um, we, need to, uh, we need to focus on the ones that He's already prepared on. And so a guy comes up with, uh, to you, you're talking with them, and he says, I could care less what you're thinking. My mind's already made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. Probably the best thing to do is to say, okay, and just move on. Talk to someone else. So don't argue for the sake of arguing. Some people delight in arguing, uh, but reason with people strategically. The second word that I would like you to remember is the word reason. Verse 2 says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, the Greek word for reasoned means to mingle thought with thought. It has two basic implications, and the first one is that Paul didn't just rant. Uh, he, there was dialogue that was going on to make sure that they understood. And secondly, he used reason when he was uh, talking with them. Anytime people ask you to turn off your mind and just trust them, you know something bad is going on. This is... Uh, this is what the cults do uh, all the time. They, they want you to just trust them. You don't, you don't need to question the, the, uh, the leader. You don't need to question uh, any authority out there. And the modern evangelical churches, hatred for academic studies many times and preoccupation with relevance and experience and feelings is not a good sign. So cults tell you to turn your mind off. Uh, the Rome uh, called for what they speak of as implicit trust. But the Bible gives to us a very reasonable faith. It's logical, it's orderly, it's satisfying to the mind. That doesn't mean people are going to respond reasonably to your reasonable faith. In fact, Paul found that over and over again. They didn't like it. They couldn't argue with him. They run him out of town, right? But just because a culture despises the truth, just because they are not wanting to argue reasonably, does not mean you should not give reason to them any longer. This is the attitude some people had. So you don't drop the gun simply because somebody says he doesn't believe in the gun. You don't drop reason just because people don't believe in reason. God believes in reason and He blesses reason in a powerful way. He backs it up. And so the use of logic and sound reasoning is part of God's strategy. And this is one of the major criticisms that I have of the emerging church movement. They're adapting, adopting a methodology based on what people want rather than on what God's Word commands. And God's Word demands reasoning. I do want you to notice, though, that Paul's reasoning was always anchored in the authority of God's Word. It says in uh, verse 2 that uh, he uh, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is where Paul's presuppositionalism comes in. He did not argue from a neutral standpoint like many people do. In fact, there is no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. There's no in-between on those things. And here's the reason. People always have an ultimate authority. That's their presuppositions. They always have an ultimate authority. And if it's not the Word of God, then it needs to be undermined by the Word of God because God wants this to be our only authority. 
And this is one of the principal areas I think even we can sometimes fall into unwittingly in our dialogue amongst Christians. We can be dialoguing and arguing, but not in terms of the Scriptures. It's in terms of our preferences, our desires, our likes, and our dislikes. Sometimes uh, there is a logic that is used. Often there's logical fallacies that are used, but it's rare to see two Christians arguing totally from the Scripture. And many times when one person brings scriptural arguments, the other one shoots it down, but he doesn't come up with those own scriptural arguments as to why those are wrong. Here's the point. It's not your opinion that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay? God's Word reserves that, uh, that, uh, that privilege. God's Word is powerful, but our opinions are not necessarily so. And so it carries a kind of a power. So one of the things I would urge you to do is analyze the way in which you dialogue with your children, with each other, and, and see to what degree is the Scripture the ultimate authority in the way in which you think, in the way in which you speak, whether it's on Facebook or wherever you're going. Now again, that does not mean people will like your authority. Uh, even our own flesh does not like the law of God, does it? It resists that. But keep plugging away with the authority of God's Word because God Himself backs up uh, that Word. Don't pick up useless weapons. It's God's Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. The fourth word in your outlines is information. Uh, verse 3 starts with the word explaining. And it's made up of three Greek words. Uh, the word dia, which means through. The word ana, which means back again. And so the first two words indicate there's this going forward and backward. And then the third word is oigo, which means to open up. And here are some dictionary definitions. To open by dividing or drawing asunder. To open thoroughly what had been closed. To open up completely. To thoroughly open and explain. And so the idea that's being pictured here is a thorough ransacking of the Scripture. You're not just debating one or two verses here. They're trying to figure out how all of this fits together, which means you need information. And if you don't have the information to come to a conclusion, the honorable thing to do is to say, look, guys, I really don't know what I'm talking about on this. I need to get out of concordance. I need to study the Scripture. We need more information before we come to a decision. But some people, man, they want to instantly come to a decision, even if it's the wrong decision. They don't have the patience to study out the Scripture. But we need uh, to dig. Both parties need to be willing to dig out information from the Bible. The fifth word in your outline is answers. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, the word demonstrating implies that there were objections to Jesus' suffering and dying. And you could just see the, the Jews really being troubled over that. How could the Messiah suffer and die? Uh, how could he be rejected by Israel? He's prophesied to be the king over the whole world, and it's a triumphant, a glorious uh, uh, realm that he's going to be ruling over. And so Paul answers this Reasonable misunderstanding by looking to the Scriptures, and the literal Greek is putting beside. So he's, he's saying, look, take a look at the Scriptures here. It says right here that the Messiah was had to, before he becomes a king, he has to suffer, he has to die, and he has to rise again from the dead. And then he applies it to Jesus, and he says, you know about Jesus, 
everything about Jesus fits these prophecies. And so he's answering their objections. We should not get upset when people object to our theology. Okay, coming to cognitive rest. Now, that's a cool term. Cognitive rest really refers to that time when all of a sudden you, you, you say, ah, now I understand, I get it. That's cognitive rest. Now, coming to cognitive rest is a very complex process that usually comes after answering many different objections and questions and puzzlements and misunderstandings, which takes patience. Paul's methodology of reasoning was a very patient answering and re-answering of, uh, of the objections that people came up with. And sometimes we get imp- sometimes I get impatient, you know. And I think, man, how many times do you have to explain this? You know, this is pretty obvious. But we should not get impatient. Paul's reasoning says we give answers to people's objections, but there is a limit. Point six shows that giving answers needs to be focused or we'll never get anywhere. Verse 3 shows that the focus of Paul's discourse was to prove that Jesus was the Christ and that they needed to submit to Him as Lord and Savior. Okay? If you've uh, been around people who argue very much, you know how easy it is for uh, people to go down rabbit trails and never get back to their original uh, subject, and that's because the rabbit trails are so interesting. They love going down these things. Now, for those of you who are internationals, um, a rabbit trail is an English idiom that um, comes from hunting. So there's this deer that's running down the path, and the hunter wants to get the deer, and he has a dog that's smelling uh, the scent of this deer, but as the dogs are coming along this path, Every once in a while, there'll be another animal, maybe like a rabbit, that will cross the path. And if it's not a trained dog, this dog will be very interested in that scent and will go off in the wrong direction. He loses his focus. That's what happens in arguments all the time. And Jehovah's Witnesses are actually trained to deliberately take you off of a point that you're really strong on, you're making some progress on, by asking a tempting question that you, oh, I've got a quick answer for that. You answer that question, which brings up another one, which before you know it, you're not even on the subject that you're strong on. You're in deep water way over your head. Now, this is the way it goes in any kind of conversations. It happens in our home. You're dealing with a subject, and it's unwitting many times. You're dealing with a subject, and then a peripheral question comes up, and uh, then that question leads to another and another, and before long, you don't even remember what you were discussing before. Paul avoids that. He keeps bringing people back to the main point of difference between them, which was Jesus Christ. And I think it's a great illustration of how to be effective in reasoning on any subject. We must maintain focus. Seventh word is convince. Verse 4 says, and some of them were persuaded. The Greek means to persuade, to endeavor to convince, to win over to a point of view. Our goal in debate should not be to win the argument and lose the person. Our goal should be to convince them of the truth of the Scripture. And uh, you can see the opposite result in people who, you know, they've been arguing, but they stop arguing. Uh, you can tell they've you know, stuck their foot in their mouth. They feel foolish. They don't want, they're not going to talk anymore, but you can tell they're not convinced. They've stopped 
arguing, so they've, they've lost the argument, but they have not been convinced. And so there are some forms of argument lend themselves to winning without convincing. In fact, many of the logical fallacies are this way. I have a friend who uses the logical fallacy of argumentum ad veracundium uh, many times. And that Latin just means it's, it's the fallacy of the misuse of authority. And so when we're, when we're uh, talking about an exegetical question in the Scripture, he'll say, oh yeah, but all of the best commentaries disagree with you. Or all of modern commentaries, or so-and-so disagrees with that. And my response is, uh, well, that's very interesting. If they all disagree with this position and this older traditional position, they must have some very good reasons for disagreeing. And I'd love to hear what those reasons are. Now, I've happened to have read those commentaries too, and they've not given any reasons for their disagreement. It's not counting noses that counts. It's having the reasons that counts. And so it's a misuse of, uh, of authority. Uh, but some people are very intimidated by that. They say, well, who am I to question such authorities? If Calvin believed it, surely it can't be wrong. If the Supreme Court of the United States has said it, surely it can't be wrong. Okay. Another logical fallacy is chronological fallacy. It's discarding something as being old-fashioned. That's just outdated. And they tried to use this in the media back with Ronald Reagan. Uh, I don't know how many times they said his ideas were Neanderthal or uh, medieval. And uh, you can hear similar arguments, you know, with regard to modesty in clothing. Oh, that's Victorian. That's puritanical. And the, the answer that we ought to give is, you know, who cares what Americans think? What does the Scripture say? What does God believe? Is it true? That's the key question. Argumentum ad hominem is where you can't win with facts. So what you do is you attack the credibility of a person by saying that he's a racist or something else like that. And the person gets uh, kind of nervous and he backs off from this argument. And I've seen this in politics many, many times where if they can make, just as an example I just gave, if they can make the term racist stick, no matter how far off the mark it may be, these guys backpedal like crazy and they're just not even going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Okay, that's argumentum um, ad, ad hominem. And... Um, if you study all of the logical fallacies, you will see that they're designed not to convince the person that you are arguing with, but to force a win in some way. And I hear logical fallacies amongst the, the children from time to time when they are arguing with each other. And so one of the things that I highly, highly, highly recommend that you include in your curriculum is some course on logic. There's some great books out there. Engel's book on Logical Fallacies is a great one. Hoover's book, Don't You Believe It? And we just started a new curriculum uh, put out by a homeschooler. But I highly recommend you teach your children how to avoid logical fallacies. Okay, the eighth word is connect. Verse 4 goes on to say, And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Paul's reasoning was not considered to be done until people had put their faith into practice. Here he says that they joined Paul and Silas. Uh, they were willing to join the cause of Christ that Paul and Silas were preaching. And so this means they weren't closet believers. They weren't Sunday-go-to-meeting Christians. Uh, they weren't pew-sitting Christians. They had joined themselves with these hardcore activists and their lives were not the same again. And so we've seen a strategy by Paul of triage, reason, 
biblical authority, giving of information, answering objections, maintaining focus, convincing, and then engaging people in action. And I think it's a great model for reasoning uh, today. Paul was not like the Greeks who loved to argue just for the sake of arguing. There are a lot of people like that. They'll even take the opposite view that they believe believe, just because they love to argue. And uh, that's not the scriptural way. The scripture's purpose for arguing and debating and reasoning is to bring people to a knowledge of the truth so that they can be transformed, conformed to the image of Christ, built up in the most holy faith. And that's Paul's goal for all of our communications. Here's Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that's building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. May our speech impart grace to the hearers as we reason with them reasonably. Now, there's one more word I've included in the outlines, and it's the word show. Why were they joined to Paul and Silas? Why doesn't it say they were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because they were indeed joined to Jesus Christ or joined to the church, but it says no, they joined Paul and Silas. Well, I believe it was because Paul and Silas had been so affected and so reflected the grace of God that they attracted the elect. And it wasn't anything outward about them that attracted because if you look at the descriptions of what they looked like in the Bible, uh, what Paul especially looked like, and the only outside of the Bible description of what Paul looked like was not very complimentary. Let me read it for you. It says, At length they saw a man coming, this is referring to Paul, of a small stature with meeting eyebrows, bald head, bow-legged, strongly built, hollow-eyed, and with a large crooked nose. So, and then it goes on to say, but he was full of grace. The people were blown away by the, this guy who was full of grace. He was ugly physically, yet there was something about him that attracted people to the gospel. And as so often happens, our arguments get a far better hearing when our lifestyle matches up. Our apologetics is so much more effective when the beauty of the Lord is resting upon us. See, we need to show the reality of what we're talking about with our lives. Or as he told these very Thessalonians that he's talking to here in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, he said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul was showing the reality of his faith in the way in which he walked around them. They could see he was not a hypocrite. They could see his love for them. And I think this is highlighted in who it was who believed. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded. There weren't very many Jews who believed. It says some of them were persuaded. When people are satisfied with hypocrisy, as many of those Jews were, because Paul says they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof, uh, they're satisfied with hypocrisy. They're not going to be affected by Paul's word and power demonstration because they're used to having those things separated in their lives. They're quite comfortable with that. But verse 4 goes on to say, "...and a great multitude of devout Greeks..." The Gentile God-fearers, if you read history, were coming to the, to the Jewish synagogues because 
they were left empty by Greek philosophy and they were attracted by the monotheism and the ethical absolutes of the Jews. There was something there uh, that attracted, uh, uh, attracted them. Now, they hadn't become Jews yet, probably because they saw an emptiness amongst the Jews as well. But as soon as they hear Paul's message, they realize this is what our soul has been longing for. And they believe they're joined to the church. A whole multitude of these Gentiles join the church. So God has obviously planted a hunger there. And what Paul was showing matched up with what he was preaching. The text goes on to say, and not a few leading women. Why does he mention that? Well, I believe that the gospel had a special appeal to women uh, in that culture because of the way the Greek and Roman culture uh, had uh, treated them. They not only had to deal with the emptiness of Greek philosophy, but the horrible chauvinism of the, the Romans and the Greeks. But uh, they also had to deal with the, the, the horrible Greek sexual practices which devastated many of these women and left them filled with self-loathing when they gave in to those practices. And amongst the Jews, at least they did not follow those practices. There was an ethic there that was somewhat satisfying. But anyone who knows about the corrupt, corrupt Judaism of Paul's day, you know that they did not live up to the biblical ideal. Women were not elevated by the rabbis of that time. And so when these women heard the gospel preached from the Jewish scriptures, they could see that that middle wall of partition between Gentile and Jew was broken down, that God had elevated men and women equally to the throne, equal access to God. They responded with joy. Okay? They found the gospel message liberating, fulfilling, satisfying. They're attracted to the gospel of Jesus that Paul was preaching. And I think this is one of the greatest arguments when we're reasoning with other people. People are attracted when they see the gospel lived out. Now, we are not, listen to me, we are not saying that experience is a substitute for logical reasoning. What we are saying is when you have reasoned rightly, that gospel should have transformed your life. One of the most logical men in history... Uh, in my estimation, because I can't understand what he says. No, not quite. But it was Blaise Pascal. He was an amazing, amazing man. Uh, child uh, prodigy, a genius, a mathematician, engineer, a philosopher, just about anything he put his hand to, uh, he was just a genius at. And it was not just his logical understanding of the Scriptures that made him a Christian. He found the Scriptures very, very satisfying intellectually to him. But there was something more. After his death, his servant found a piece of paper that was sewn into the lining of his coat. And part of that paper spoke of the experience of his theology. It said, The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past midnight. Fire! The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals. Certitude, certitude. So there's his reason engaged. He had certitude, but it's a certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy, renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ. What's going on there? The God that he knew intellectually, he now had experienced in, in, within his own life. 
reason and power had met together. And that's what the Gospel is. It is a theology. We must never forget that. But Paul also said, it is the power of God unto salvation. And when people experience that, they are liberated from slavery into sonship, sons and daughters of the God Most High. And so here's the question that I have for you this morning. Is theology and the power of God wedded together in your life? If it is not, a couple possibilities. It may be that you have not yet tasted and seen that the God, God is good in your own salvation. And you may need to cry out to God for grace to transform you and change you. But it may be, and more likely in this group, it likely is, that you need to cry out to the Holy Spirit to fill you once again with the Spirit of God. You need to pray that your pastor and your elder and your officers in the future would never stop being full of the Holy Spirit because you can have all of the reasonable reasoning in the world and it's not going to accomplish anything and people whose hearts are averse to God until the Spirit of God opens their minds and opens their hearts to receive it. We need both. Reason and God's power uh, linked together. It'd be like saying, I better quit aiming my gun at a criminal's heart when he says he does not believe in guns. This brings us full back to where we started the sermon. We've got to link the two together. We can't simply stop teaching the whole counsel of God because people aren't interested. They're not willing to receive it. Uh, we, 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 we pull the trigger. And by God's grace, what we see, amazingly, is that some men and women and children indeed find that that theology is relevant, is powerful, is life-transforming, and is something to be experienced. By the Spirit of God, they have realized that the Gospel is Word, but it's not Word only. It is also power. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank You, Father, for this Word in Acts 17, 1-4 that You have given to us, and I pray that it would take deep root in our hearts, that it would transform the way in which we dialogue, bring the Gospel to unbelievers, but also the way in which we dialogue with each other. Help us to be people who reason reasonably. And we pray that You would uh, give the empowering of Your Holy Spirit so that grace would be on our lips and not simply a dead letter. But Father, may there be the quickening of truth with the power of Your Spirit uh, to transform our lives and to transform the lives of others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.